Harry Eastlack was born in Philadelphia on November 17, 1933. Records suggest that his childhood was an active and happy one. His pastimes consisted of listening to music on the radio or records at home. Eastlack would also enjoy reading, playing with his sister, and going to the movies. Additionally, a seat was exclusively reserved for him at the centre of the seventh row in Hamilton Theatre, a musical theatre in Philadelphia. It has been claimed that ushers would not let anyone else sit there as the spot was spacious enough to later allow Eastlack to stretch his immobile leg. At the age of four, a car hit Eastlack's leg, injuring his left femur. He was taken to the hospital where his leg was put in a cast before returning home. The fracture never set properly, and when the cast was removed months later, his leg was painfully swollen. No further action was taken, and shortly after, Eastlack began to experience his first set of abnormal bone growths. His hips and knees had become difficult to move. When he was taken to the hospital with this concern, the doctor took x-rays in which the bony deposits on his thigh muscles were revealed. Eastlack soon suffered flare-ups along his back, neck, and chest. In attempts to diagnose and treat Eastlack's condition, the doctors ordered biopsies and performed a total of 11 surgical procedures to remove excess bone, such as the one on his thigh muscles. However, Eastlack's condition was aggravated by such procedures and the bone returned thicker and more predominant. It was 1938, the following year after the incident, when he was finally diagnosed with what we now call fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva, or FOP. Unaware of the consequences of surgery on a FOP patient, the physician admitted Eastlack for hip surgery in 1941, which caused further physical restriction. Over time, Eastlack became more and more immobilized as more joints became fused as newly formed sheets or strings of bone calcified his limbs. In 1944, he was readmitted for a study which confirmed that the calcified smooth muscles, tendons and ligaments had indeed become mature bone. The ossification along his vertebra and other anatomical parts that Eastlack would suffer in the next 29 years ultimately fused him into an eternally bowed position. As the disease progressed, Eastlack struggled more with routine movement and self-care. At first, it was his mother, Helen, who would assist him and care for him. However, by the time Eastlack reached about 20 years old, his mother was too feeble to continue. He was then taken to a nursing home in Philadelphia, the Inglis House for the Incurables, which is now simply known as Inglis House. As he approached the later stages of his life, he required assistance to stand and use a cane to be able to shuffle. During his time there, his right leg broke and is said to have healed at an odd angle. Consequently, he spent years bedridden and developed pneumonia from physical inactivity. Due to the ossification of his ribs, his lungs could not expand well, and this inhibited his ability to cough. Near the time of his death, Eastlack told his sister Helena that he desired to donate his body and medical records to research so that the disease may be further investigated and understood. On November 11, 1973, just six days shy of his 40th birthday, he died of pneumonia. Welcome to Genetic Drift, the podcast where we take a deep dive into the world of genetic diseases. I'm your co-host, Anthony. And I'm Julianne. Whoa. 
So I take it we're going into our Halloween episodes? We're approaching Halloween, so this one is kind of because of some of the uh, stories around it. But yeah, this is a very dark episode. So so this story was about a man who kept developing extra bone? Yes. Whoa. Uh, I'll show you a picture, because uh, you can find... Uh, Harry Eastlack's skeleton, it was donated, and you can see pictures of it online. Whoa! But, so, obviously people can't tell from what us talking, but basically all the, like, a lot of the muscle along the entirety of his back, arms, and back of his neck is just bone. It and, looks more like a mummy. Yeah, it, it's kind of like he's, like, someone's melted candle wax over a skeleton. And that's all bone. Yes. Whoa. Okay, we'll post that photo on social media with this episode. This is a pretty crazy condition. Yes. Yes, it is. So, tell me about it. Okay, so the condition's called Fibrodysplasia ossificans progressiva. Okay. But but we're going to call it FOP for the rest of this. Well, ossificans would be becoming bone. Mm -hmm. Progressiva will be it progresses over time. Yes. I have no idea what that first word was. Fibrodysplasia? Uh, I imagine that, I think it just means like a a dysfunction in fibrous tissue. Okay. Or in muscle fibers. So FOP is an extremely rare connective tissue disease where the connective tissue turns to bone either after trauma or spontaneously during flare-ups. So what is connective tissue exactly? Connective tissue covers a lot of things, so muscle, tendon, ligament, skin. Oh, skin? Yeah, it's connective tissue. It holds things together. So kind of everything. But yeah, so connective tissues, you know, a lot of the body is is potentially affected by this. So kind of your muscles and skin and anything that isn't an organ? To an extent, yes. I mean, not like nerves or neural tissue, but... Muscles, tendons, ligaments, uh, smooth muscles sometimes as well, and uh, your skin can all become bony. Okay. And it's the only known medical condition where one organ system can change into another. What? Well, muscles are a different organ system to bone. Wait, bones are an organ system? Yes, your skeleton. It's an organ? Yes. But it's made up of different tissues working together. Oh. I, I, okay. <laughs> that required too much science knowledge. I thought skeletons were their own thing. No, they're, 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 they're they are an organ. Your bones are organs. I'll remember that for quiz night. So, there are some uh, symptoms that you'd obviously expect with this. Um, though interestingly, there are some early clues that you can get in patients. So about half of patients, um, are born with a malformed big toe. The reason is not known, but, uh, in some cases, the toe is actually missing a joint. That's a really odd specific indicator. Yeah, but I mean, if you, you, you want as early an indicator as possible for this, really, so... If if that helps direct you on how you're going to handle someone's health, 
It just seems so random. You think the indicator would be like extra bone, not just a weird toe? Well, that sort of thing doesn't really happen at birth, though. So this is like, you know, something that you can see when a child is born. So then afterwards, the first flare-up leading to bone formation will often occur before a child turns 10 years old. So in the case that we saw, that, that we discussed, it was four years old. So walk me through what, what actually happens. Okay, so either some tissue will undergo trauma. So let's say you break your leg and the bone will break, but also muscle and ligaments around it might get torn. They might become damaged. At that point, rather than repairing the muscle and ligaments, your body goes a different direction and it starts turning the damaged tissue into bone. So you just have bits of bone in the gap where you would have new muscle tissue instead? Yes. That seems like a really big problem. It's a massive problem. And we'll go into it a little bit more as I continue with the symptoms. Okay. So you can get the first flare-up leading to bone formation before 10, and a child with FOP will typically develop additional bones starting at the neck and then down to the shoulders, arms, chest, and finally towards the feet. Do we know why it kind of starts at the top and moves down? There are so few cases that it's very hard to work out patterns in this condition. I'm so, kind of surprised it doesn't show up immediately at birth. Like, kids get hurt constantly. Yeah, but it could be a bit like how people have autoimmune conditions that don't trigger until something else sets it off. It could be, there might be some developmental uh, process or a significant enough trauma is needed. That There's a lot of research that still needs to be done in this condition, and it's very difficult because, as, as we'll mention later on, it's a very, very rare condition. Okay, so we don't really know why it doesn't show up in little kids falling over. Yeah. Is there, do we know anything? Is there... Do we know if it's associated with kind of a big trauma, like breaking a leg, as opposed to just falling off your bike? No, no, there's no link like that. You can have a random flare-up that starts it off. Oh, no. So, yeah, and from all this uh, this bone formation, eventually a secondary skeleton will form, and this can progressively restrict a patient's ability to move. What do you mean a secondary skeleton? So... As you saw with the uh, picture I showed you, the bone was forming sheets on top of the regular skeleton. So it's not, like, connected to the... Well, it's not It's not the skeleton that you started off with, and therefore it's the, a secondary one. Yeah, but, but it's kind of like encasing you. But, so, say I get a sheet of bone on my arm, mm -hmm. is that connected to my humerus? It can be. Can be, or it can just be a sheet it sitting could... on top? Yeah. Um, but eventually what will happen is as it gets bigger and bigger, it will just start, um, it will start, uh, basically forcefully connecting your joints in, in the position that they're in when the bone forms. What? So you'll be frozen in a position. So, for example, if you had your hand closed, and then you had a flare-up that caused a lot of ossification around the hand, you would form a sec, uh, um, an enough bone formed that you had like this secondary skeleton around your hand you wouldn't be able to open your fist afterwards. Because the bone's covering the joints? Yes. Oh no. And also because the bone has basically replaced a lot of the muscle that would do the movement. Okay, and 
Is this... Sorry, I have so many questions on this. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Is it, like, visible from the outside? Beside the immobility? I mean, if you let me go through the symptoms, you might actually be able to find this out rather than keep asking questions. Fine. So, most of what you will see typically is only visible in the sense of someone's loss of mobility. So they will not be able to move joints properly. They might be, like with Harry Eastlack, in a complete in a uh, forced bowed position or in a forced sitting position that they can't move from. Um, they may not be able to fully open their mouth because the uh, ligaments and um, bones in their jaw have uh, become ossified. You can get bony growths visible on the skin, but that's not always the case. So it's kind of like getting the bony bits on the skin, it's kind of like um, Game of Thrones when they talk about the Grey Plague, a bit like that. So potential for spooky walking skeleton. Yeah, maybe. But eventually this obviously becomes more of a problem because you then can get extra bone forming around the ribs, which means you can't expand your ribs properly, which makes breathing more difficult, which means you get more respiratory infections, and eventually you can, um, you you could die of pneumonia or something like that. Oh no. What about your heart? Well, your heart has a lot of connective tissue surrounding it as well, so if you are very unlucky, you could basically you have your heart encapsulated with bone. So not necessarily the heart itself, but you have um, you have the connective tissue that kind of encapsulates the heart to protect it from other things. This is a horror movie. Yes, yes, this is probably the scariest condition we're going to cover, at least for a long time. Too spook for me. Yeah, yeah, this is why the, the next episode we're doing is more of a quirky spooky rather than a full-on scary spooky. But I thought it was, it was, a, it was an interesting condition to uh, raise awareness for, especially because of how hard it is to get the uh, resources to research it. Yeah. So, besides the weird toe growth, how else can this condition be diagnosed? So most of the diagnosis will be based on symptoms. So you'd be taking x-rays probably to look for... Uh, you'd be taking x-rays to look for bone in places that there shouldn't be. You can sequence the DNA. Uh, That's a relatively recent development. So we do know what genes involved at least, which can help with diagnosis. But because this disorder is so rare, the condition is often misdiagnosed as cancer or uh, other types of fibrosis, so other kinds of scarification in the body. But it's extra bone. It feels like it would be really obvious. Well, the problem is that um, a lot of fibrosis and like that sort of scarring actually forms some ossification. And it's the difference between you having sort of bony-like tissue and having tissue turning into bone. And they, and that's hard to figure out, really? Well, it takes extra work. So you would go with the more common diagnosis first. Unfortunately, the best way to distinguish between the two of them is to take a biopsy of the tissue. And the biopsy can then exacerbate bone growth in FOP patients. Because you've caused a wound? Yes. Oh no. So it's difficult and sometimes risky 
to go through certain elements of the diagnosis process. So you would rather be doing x-rays and DNA testing now. That makes sense. So do patients struggle to get diagnosed? I guess I'm just struggling to get past the the fact that it's extra bone, surely you see that on the x-ray and go, what? Well, there are other conditions that can cause um, sort of like bone formation, but they don't cause they don't cause your tissue to turn into bone. They cause like extra bone formation around joints and things like that. And that can be quite hard to distinguish at times, especially because a lot of the initial symptom development happens around the spine. So when you think about things like any kind of spinal arthritis or any kind of osteodysplasia or even we're thinking about ankylosing spondylitis where you get bone formation around the hips and the spine these are all kind of happening in areas where early symptoms of FOP can also be observed speaking really matter of factly i did not know there were other things where extra bone can appear in your body i am shook yes so diagnosis can be difficult and uh, yeah it's very tricky to diagnose at times oh no so what does this mean for the people who live with this what's their life expectancy um it's not great if the condition is well managed the current median life expectancy so obviously it can vary quite a bit from this is 40 years. Ooh. So does it only happen when you're when you get injured so could you avoid it getting worse? No. No, you can have flare-ups where your body just goes through a stage of inflammation that then causes bone to form. Your bone just go or your body just goes, "I'm a be more skeleton now." <laughs> yeah. What? Also what's um, a little scary about this is so obviously you want to see how, how can you manage this or how do we manage it? And the problem is that there is no cure or approved treatment. Nothing? Nothing that is approved. So there are things that have been undergoing trials. So there were clinical trials of corticosteroids. So, you know, corticosteroids can help control inflammation. And the idea would be when someone's having a flare-up, you give them steroids, they undergo less inflammation and therefore less bone forms. Are those the steroids that aren't the... Raw Remagimbro steroid? Yeah. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, uh, clinical trials, they failed to demonstrate any effectiveness. So those don't seem to work. Okay. Um, and it's not an autoimmune thing? No. So you can't control it through... Immune suppression. No. Oh. And attempts to surgically remove bits of bone uh, actually result in explosive growth of new bone. So that actually makes it worse, that attempt to treat it. Uh, the only things that uh, patients can really do, besides, you know, being careful and being as healthy as possible, is to vaccinate themselves against viral infections such as influenza, because viral infection can sometimes trigger a flare-up. Which makes sense. If, you, if you're, like, in a fever and you're inflamed and everything like that, that might, that might just tip you over. And uh, prophylactic antibiotics to prevent respiratory infections with people who have bone along the rib, extra bone along the ribs. What does prophylactic mean? Prophylactic means as a preventative measure. So just take antibiotics all the time? Yes. Oh. Mm -hmm. That seems like an issue for antibiotic re resistance. It can be. But they don't have much of a choice in the matter. Yeah. And that's it. That's all we have to manage this condition. Oh no. Are, 
so our, so patients are in pain a lot of the time because the bone's in the wrong place. They can, they can be in a lot of pain, yes. Is that what's causing the pain? Is it extra? Is it the extra bone rubbing against tissues it's not supposed to? I believe so. Being a skeleton isn't fun. No, no, it is not. So, so what type of genetic condition is this? Okay, so officially it is an autosomal dominant condition. However, you rarely ever find cases of people actually passing it on in their family. Because it happens early enough, and it causes enough of a problem to your life that people typically either decide not to have children or are not in a position to have children. So most cases are actually caused by spontaneous mutation in the sex cells. Ooh. So the sperm or the egg, it mutates and it and the gene becomes faulty. Men over 40 are more likely to pass on this mutation. Why over 40? Because the sperm have more mutations in them as they get older. Okay. So is... So is that part of why this is so rare? Because even though it's dominant, we don't tend to see it passed on. And so you're just waiting for the chance of spontaneous. Yeah, and it doesn't seem like it happens particularly frequently at random either. So uh, we thankfully we know the gene that's affected. Okay. This gene is called ACVR1. And it's a receptor for a protein it's known as the bone morphogenic protein and it's involved in a pathway that's called the bone morphogenic pathway but what that is responsible for is the formation and repair of bone so this receptor will pass on a signal to say we need to fix this bone we need to make some bone here okay in the mutation what happens is that this receptor is active when it shouldn't be and it's active in connective tissues when it should have been switched off during uh, fetal development. So if you imagine when a baby's forming, you have different genes and they have different messages. Now, once this, uh, a line of cells decide they're going to be connective tissues, they switch off this receptor. They go, we don't need this anymore. We're never going to form bone. But someone with FOP, they have a mutation, which means that that, switches, that, that thing stays on. So then it means that at some point, those tissues may basically decide we need to make some bone here. What's confusing to me is that they don't always form bone. They only sometimes do. Yeah, um, I think that due to how few cases there are, people, may, people probably don't know why that is at the moment. Okay. Like, this is very, very rare. Okay, so you have... Some so so you have a gene that is causing your cells to be like, let's make more bone instead of just repairing the muscle tissue that's there. Yeah. Okay, that's simple enough. How how rare is this disease? Okay, so the estimated rate of uh, people that we think will have FOP is. One in every two million births. Very rare. Yeah, and uh, in 2017, the number of confirmed worldwide cases throughout history was 800. 800 throughout history? 
that we could confirm as fog. But you said one in two million. Yeah, there are. Remember, this is a difficult to diagnose case. Not every case is going to be drawn to、uh, medical attention. So have we just guessed at the one in two million thing? Yeah. Because aren't there like eight billion people on the planet? Yeah, something like that.、Um, but what it will probably be is that they'll they'll use groups like the US and the UK and other countries, and they'll go, "This is how many cases of FOP we've recorded, and this is how many people we have, and this is how many cases we think we've probably missed." Okay. And from that, they work out the number. But as you can see, very very rare condition. Yeah. You'll be happy to know. That I'm only adding one thing to the section of other conditions caused by this. Good. The initial symptoms seem to really cover everything. Yep.、Uh, hearing loss. Why? So about half the patients, what happens is that the、uh, bones in the ear start fusing to each other, and therefore they don't vibrate in response to sound, and you lose hearing. And you can't fix it with surgery because you just make it worse. Yep. Okay. So on that slightly less dark part of a very very dark section, we're going to take a short break. Okay. History time. Yes, it is history time. Why do I feel like we're not going to have much history on this one? The history is a little bit difficult on this one. I mean, if we only have eight hundred known cases ever. Yeah, I mean, so some of this is、uh, we're having to take a, a slightly more creative approach to estimating the history. Oh, <laughs> creative history sounds really scientific. <laughs> So, there have been cases like there have been like stories and myths about basically people becoming statues or being frozen. You think about things like the story of King Midas or Medusa's stare, and actually, this condition is sometimes nicknamed the stare of Medusa. Really, that somebody was feeling really dramatic. Well, you, you say that, but if you saw. That that skeleton that I showed you, or fob, just frozen in place. You would think that someone had been turned to、uh, turned to stone. It's quite like staggering. So it, it's possible. So there are anecdotal cases that suggest that this condition may have had some influence on、uh, some of the mythology that we're aware of. And if so, then there are some cases that are in humans that have gone back thousands of years. Okay, really cool theory. Not sure I buy it. Yeah, no, that's fair, but it's it's、um, as I say that the the, the、um, it's a very difficult condition to diagnose anyway. But there are some very staggering symptoms, which you can see inspiring the、uh, the imagination of people. Yeah. I also tried to see if there was any way of tracing the mutation.、Uh, no one's tried to trace the mutation within humans. Probably because there are so few cases that, and that it often occurs because of random mutation. 
So I next looked into seeing if there are any other animals that have similar traits. Yeah. So there are many uh, what are known as armoured fish, and they have uh, similar levels of this sort of bone, additional bone formation throughout them, particularly around the neck and head. And okay, by additional bone formation, do you mean they just have lots and lots of extra bones in their skeleton, or this is a secondary skeleton situation? Secondary skeleton situation. Okay. And there are models. Some some of these models we've made, some of them we've seen actual uh, live examples of. So uh, for mice, we've been able to make a FOP model. We gave a mouse FOP. Essentially, yeah. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, so that mutation will form that kind of progression. We've observed it in zebrafish as well. We gave zebrafish fob. Uh, I think in that situation we actually found it. Oh, okay. In a line. Uh, Can a been... fish still swim if it has extra bone, or does that mess up its buoyancy? It would honestly depend on where the bone is. Okay. Um, there was a case in Brazil where someone's cat actually had fop-like symptoms. Skelecat! So, and uh, there have been some cats that have been used for models for uh, fop as well. Oh. And whales. And whales? Yeah. So there's there's quite a few different um, animals that have a predisposition towards fop or have, like, you know, a risk of getting something like fop. That seems like a really wide range of animals for a very specific gene mutation. Well, you say that, but forming bone is a very, very conserved process. Anything that has a skeleton needs switches in order to make bone. What do you mean conserved? Conserved means that it's basically the same or very similar amongst many, many species. Okay. So if you need to form bone, you need a system to make you form bone. And then to make you stop forming bone. Yeah, and... Mice, zebrafish, cats, whales, fish, humans, they all have skeletons. And they all have bony skeletons. Okay, so... Or at least most fish do. <laughs> so jellyfish can't get in. Jellyfish aren't fish. And they also don't have a skeleton, so you That are... was my point! Not that they were fish! I was just calling them jellyfish because that's what we call them! Okay. But no, they can't get it. Okay. So it's potentially the case that uh, a tendency towards a mutation that could cause FOP has existed for hundreds of millions of years. Because there are, loads of con- there are loads of cells that have had to be able to just turn these switches on and off and something can go wrong. Yeah, it's just kind of if everybody has that switch, then eventually something will go wrong with it. Because as we're seeing, something yeah. can go wrong with every gene. Yeah, so like, you know, the last time we were really related to uh, something like a zebrafish, you're looking at about... 400 million years ago. Yeah, and it makes sense that it's super uncommon because without, like, modern medical care, it seems pretty deadly, and definitely for an animal. Even with modern medical care, as you've seen, it's very limited on what can be done. Yeah, and if an animal were to have its movement restricted, then that's it. As you say, with fish, whales, in their situation, probably just sink. Little skelefish. But yeah, so um, as you can see, it's a it's a a strange mutation that has potentially been around for a very very long time. 
Why has it been around that whole time if it's not being passed on? So the fact that it occurs randomly means it's probably managed to kind of avoid selection pressure. Yeah, I guess so. So the selection, as we discussed, it is selected against because people with it often aren't able to pass it on. Yeah. But then it shows up randomly anyways. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it probably shows, like, how rare it is shows how heavily it is selected against because you'll have, like, very rare instances where someone gets it and then it's not going to follow their family because they're not going to have children. They're, they're unlikely to have children. And Do it kind of dies with their line. Why is it dominant? Is that just a random thing? Or are things dominant that we actually... That, that there is selection pressure for? So it will just be to do with the fact that the mutation makes the gene more active. If 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 a gene has a more passive role, it's more likely to be recessive. But if it has, a, but if a mutation makes something more active, it's going to be more dominant. Oh, I never knew that. Thanks. You're welcome. So we get a little bit more information once we get to the uh, more modern history. Okay. So there have been medical records describing individuals affected by FOP as far back as the 17th century. Oh, okay. Where? So uh, the UK, for example, for, for worth noting first is that FOP was actually originally called myositis ossificans progressiva and was thought to be caused by muscular inflammation, which is what myositis is, that caused the bone to form. That sounds like what happens. Yeah, it's pretty reasonable. Like they, They've only changed it since because it's not just the muscle. But yeah, so the disease was actually renamed to FOP, though, as late as 1970, following the discovery that soft tissue and other muscles, such as ligaments, were also affected by the disease process. So they knew what it was back in the 17th century. Yes. That's honestly pretty amazing in a period where I thought they would just say it's witchcraft. I mean, that might be a bit harsh for the 17th century. But... Is it? Is it, though? 1600s? Think of when we were burning witches. Uh, I mean, which country do you want to go with there? But, um, yeah, okay, fair enough. But so this, so this one, I was quite surprised that there was good medical data for it going that far back, for what we would, you know, keep as a standard now. And, yeah, medical data that seems kind of correct. They figured it out. Yeah, I mean, I mean they knew that bone formation would happen around muscle and soft tissue. They just, they, they, and they were most of the way there on work, on um, understanding kind of why, in a sense, because they thought it was the muscle would become inflamed, and it can do, that can do it. But there were other things that could do it as well. I'm surprised they even saw enough cases to name it. Yeah. I've no idea how. <laughs> Honestly, uh, what probably happened is it was one of these things where the condition was thought as so interesting to doctors that loads of people flooded, like individual patients with the condition. Probably. But yeah, so then in the 1970s, it was renamed by Dr. Victor A. McCusick. Um, that was following discoveries he made that other soft tissue, such as your ligaments and your uh, tendons, new skin could also be affected by this condition okay and then so then they wanted to give it this name to say you know it's it's connective tissue rather than 
muscle. Makes sense. So it went from mop to fob. You just wanted to say that? Yes, I did. Uh, but it wasn't until 2006 that the gene was discovered. Okay. And it took 15 years of them looking for it to find it. They looked for it for 15 years? Yes. Oh, those poor scientists. Yeah. They so, must have been so annoyed. Well, yeah. So the th part of what made it so difficult is that there wasn't really family lines. And if you have family lines, you, it's a lot easier because relatives have a lot more in common with each other gene-wise. So if you say, like, you know, we have this family, we have one man and he has two children and they have two children each and one of the kids has fop and the other one doesn't you work out what's the difference between the siblings okay that was a very long explanation to say you can just compare the genes but relatives have very very similar genes to each other so it's a lot easier to find out the disease causing ones because you can just see which relatives have the same gene and, and the disease and the disease yeah but without that you're just comparing somebody's genome against another person another person and hoping you can figure out yeah and they could be very different especially because this doesn't discriminate amongst geographically sex or ethnicity and therefore there could be lots of traits that um traits that are more common in certain ethnic groups and others that then makes it a lot harder for you to find what's actually causing a disease pro process rather than just being a difference between two people because of their ethnicities Okay, I guess I didn't realize it was so hard to find things. In my head, all humans have like really quite similar genes because you always hear that thing of like we have share 98% DNA mm. with primates or something. Yes. But, but that 2% is a lot. Yeah. Um there is a lot of a lot of information. Okay. Um I think I think it's if you were if you put your DNA into size 11 font you could fill the entire british library with someone's with someone's genome oh okay i understand why it took 15 years yeah and they didn't i guess if they didn't know where to start looking yeah yeah there, there, there was a lot going against them when it came to uh trying to work this out well good job on them figuring it out yeah no the work that the work that has been done on this is brilliant I'm surprised it got funding since it's so rare. So that will probably be the there'll be um you know interest groups that funded it, but also the thing is very interesting conditions can get funding. Because they're just so interesting. Yeah, so this is again sort of the academia side of it, but what publications want is something that has an impact on society. And if you can say we've worked out why some people turn to bone because um, then that's a really good press release for an article. I would read that news article. Yeah, exactly. And then lots of other people will read the journal article, and that's really good for the researchers. So with a condition like this, part of it is that the symptoms are so, from a general perspective, so interesting that there there's always going to be some people that will be willing to fund some research, but it's just very difficult to get the resources with regards to people with the condition and their consent and all that sort of stuff to actually get the information in place. And, um, yeah. So where are we now? Earlier, earlier you said there's, like, no treatment. Yeah. Are we figuring any out? We have one thing that looks promising and that's it. Okay, what's that? So 
In 2018, phase 2 clinical trials started for an antibody therapy called Lumina 1. Now the reason, so this antibody works by blocking the receptor. So, Sorry, you've started in too, too high for me. Okay, so rem- okay, let's go back to the basics on here. Remember that FOP happens because you have a receptor that tells you to make bone that is active when it shouldn't be. Yeah. So the premise of this treatment is to inject an antibody that blocks that receptor so that it can't pass on the message, make bone. Okay, like an antibody like you would use to fight a virus? Yeah, or like we use for immune therapy. But this isn't an immune system issue. No, but antibodies are very specific, so you can target specific proteins. Oh, okay. So so you're just sending in a little shield? In a sense. Okay. And it's at phase two clinical trials, so this is where they are starting to test it on patients, and they're trying to work out the ideal dosage. Okay. So that's good. That started in 2018. I don't know how long a process this would be because this is a slow progressive condition. So I imagine that clinical trials are very slow for this, for this condition. That's so interesting that they figured out this way to even tackle it, though, because since it's not an immune system issue, it, feel, it, it seems really cool to have gone to antibody treatment. Yeah, this is good. But it will only stop further ossification. This isn't. This can't undo any damage that's already done, um, and this doesn't, you know, prevent the cells from being capable of doing this thing. Like you, you're not administering any gene therapy to someone in this situation. So it is good. It's promising, but it's going to take a while before we know if it's usable, and it's still going to be quite limited on how it can help. Okay, and no gene therapy on this. Nothing. Okay. Uh, Some of that would be the gene therapy is kind of expensive anyway, and with how rare it is, I don't think anyone's going to be able to justify putting in the the funds to research that at the moment. Yeah, I guess so. So it's um, unfortunately it's not the most optimistic future, but there is at least something. Yeah. Otherwise, the only other thing is there's there's not much with regards to how to destigmatize this condition because people don't really know about it. Yeah. So the general rule is to just kind of educate yourself on FOP if you want to know more about it. I would look into the um, the IFOPA website, so www.ifopa.org, and they are uh, they're, they're a group that uh, link researchers, doctors, and patients, and they provide a lot of resources in the history of FOP. So it's it's a good thing to get uh, more information from. Cool. And uh, with that, I think we're at the end of the episode. Wow, that was a good spooky episode. Thank you. You're welcome. So if you enjoyed this, get in touch with us. Leave a review on iTunes. Tweet us at geneticdrift1. Join our Facebook group or email us at geneticdriftpodcast at gmail.com. Yep. So please get in on the conversation. Now, the music for this podcast, as with every other episode, is produced by William Kitchener Music, so please check that out. And before we go, just like to say, withhold your judgment, because you can't see the genes, so don't expect to see the illness. Goodbye. Bye.